This text of scripture in Matthew chapter 16 is a wonderful text. It begins with the statement, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. This city, this town is in the northernmost part of the nation of Israel. It sits very near the current border with Lebanon and Syria. It sits at the base of Mount Hermon and it's 9,000 foot peak towering overhead. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a great place for reflection. It's a great place for nurturing devotion and even for worship. I've had the privilege of visiting this place on a few occasions. It's a an interesting place. You see the snow from Mount Hermon seeps into the soil there and kind of makes its way down the mountain and then bubbles up at the base. There in Caesarea Philippi, there's a cave set in the rock face and this cave houses, if you will, a significant spring of water that comes out. It forms a, a, a not too small stream. And these streams help form the headwaters for the Jordan River. It's a wonderful spot, especially for devotion. And, and if you have spent time down around, as Jesus had, down around the Sea of Galilee and all the press of people coming in around him and the weariness that he certainly felt, this seems like a place that Jesus would have gone for a quiet retreat with his disciples, maybe to rest and to invest in them. But there seems to be more going on. You see, this cave became the center of pagan worship in the third century BC. Sacrifices were thrown into the cave, in toward the spring of water that was bubbling up. Sacrifices were thrown there, and offerings particularly were made to the God of Pan, Pan of Greek mythology. Half man, half goat, horns, hoofs, hairy, the whole nine yards. This is Pan. It's, he's an interesting study if you get any time to dive into that and or want to do that. He is known as the God of fright. That makes sense because from his name is where we get our word for Panic. It's where we get our word for panic. He was also consumed with the pursuit of self-pleasure. He typically carried a flute, had a love for music. He's often depicted playing this flute and using it to entice others, draw them to himself. Some have called him the original bad boy. He likes loud, chaotic music and noise. He's been described as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. It was here at this spot that homage was paid to this Greek god, Pan. Adjacent to the cave were niches hewn into the rock face. They look like windowless window seals and frames. There where pedestals serve to support uh, figures, graven images that were made to Pan and to other gods. 
Like Pan, our modern culture is generally obsessed with self and self-pleasure. People aggressively, angrily rebel against existing beliefs, against constant values that have been in place for a long time. People quickly reject external authority, truth, and practices. We demand unhindered personal autonomy in today's world. We self-identify according to emotion, according to feelings, according to desire, or according to some inherent need. Each person is free to create themselves in any form that they wish and essentially design life in any way that serves themselves. Jesus and his disciples are near this shrine to this false god, Pan. A God centered upon fear and self-pleasure. And he poses this provocative question. Who do people say that I am? How do people identify me? And better yet, who do you say I am? How do you identify me? This is the most important question facing all humanity. It's the most important question facing you today. How do you identify Christ? Who do you believe he is? Is Jesus the Christ? Or is he just a good teacher? A good citizen? A great example to follow? This question is my first point. So this morning, we'll call it the inescapable question facing all humanity. Because you can't run from it. You can't hide from it. It's going to seek you out. Jesus had been reveling in his deity, if we want to say it that way. He certainly was exposing his deity, revealing his deity. They had just come off of his second time of taking a modest uh, hand of loaves and turning that into a meal for thousands of people. His disciples were struggling a little bit. They were trying to figure out who he is. They believed, they believed the vernacular. They believed what Jesus said, but they were having trouble believing it. Does that make sense? They could give lip service to him being the one sent from God having authority that no one here on this earth had, but yet they were having difficulty actually digesting it. Jesus warned them of the false teachers, the Jews, the Sadducees. In other words, the leaven, he said, that they were adding to the bread, false teaching. It's easy for religion to go in the wrong direction, to slide off into a direction that's not helpful, that can even become heretical. I think about this area, this land known as Israel and God's intent for it when he brought his people out of Egypt and he promised them this land. And as they prepared to go in, he gave them some, uh, he gave them some things that they should do, some things they should be warned about and refrain from. One of those was do not intermarry with the people there. Why? Well, he tells us that if you intermarry, their religious and spiritual beliefs will begin to affect you. Probably more so than you will affect them. We always think the other way, don't we? We give ourselves the benefit of a doubt, but that was not true. 
They did intermarry. They did falter. Even in Solomon's day, as he was receiving women as gifts, wives as gifts from other heads of state, other nations. And he built up such a harem that it's unconscionable to think about. And this laid the groundwork for trouble in the land. After his death, his son Rehoboam was set to be his successor. But you may remember your Bible history and know that that didn't take place, that the kingdom actually divided. And an opportunistic politician named Jeroboam took the 10 tribes in the north and they called themselves Israel while the two tribes left called themselves Judah, remained based in Jerusalem. And it didn't take Jeroboam long to institute false worship as a pattern for the whole nation. And up in this area that we're talking about, the area of Dan, around the headwaters of the Jordan River, Jeroboam built his own altar there. He put a golden calf there as representative of God. But false worship quickly filled the land, which leads us to what's going on here with the worship of Pan three centuries before Jesus appeared on the scene. And it's going on everywhere. And when you travel around that area, even today, you find these high places everywhere. And the archaeologists tell us that this is where the pagans worshiped. They're gods. They worship creation. They worship the sun. They worship the rain. They worship gods. And it's, it's really a disturbing thing. In the midst of this, right front and center of this, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And this conversation followed him everywhere he went. Matthew 21, 10, as he entered Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? Matthew 22 and 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Mark 6, 2 and 3. And many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? This is his hometown. What is the, free, the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Even Pilate, before he condemned him to death, said, Are you the king of the Jews? Have you no answer to make? Tell us who you are. Well, Jesus asked the disciples and they had a ready answer. Well, some say, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you might be Elijah. You know, Elijah ascended in a chariot. He didn't die as such. Legend had it that Elijah was going to return someday in dramatic fashion and that maybe Jesus was Elijah, come back. Some thought he was Jeremiah. Another legend was during the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and hidden it away somewhere and that he was coming back and would retrieve the Ark and would resume worship in the nation again. Others said he was a prophet. Muhammad said Jesus was a prophet. 
The Quran says he's a prophet. And yet Islam rejects Jesus' deity, crucifixion, and resurrection. Some in Islam have said that the Bible is like first grade and that the Quran is like fifth or sixth grade. I had an imam wannabe tell me one day that Jesus was the original flip phone and that Muhammad was a smartphone. They see a progression that's occurring. The truth is, humans don't have a category for Jesus. He is man. He is fully man and he is fully God. He is fully man as if not God. He's fully God as if not man. Scripture makes this very clear. It's confusing to us. We can't get our minds around it. We don't have a category. We don't have anything in our human thought and vernacular to begin to understand it. He healed the lame, the blind. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He cast demons into the sea. He fed thousands with a couple of loaves of bread. He spoke in violent storms, stopped in their tracks. Yet many could not answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Why? Because it didn't fit their preconceived categories. It did not fit their preferences and desires. And yet it's the most important question for every human being to encounter. Who do you say Jesus is? Everywhere people are talking about identity. Are you male? Are you female? Are you something else? Confusions dominating our society. Individualism is king. Recently, a man was nominated for a Woman of the Year Award. Thankfully, he didn't win. But it's just a matter of time. The path that we're on, we are victims of our own confusion that we're creating in our own minds and hearts. We don't know much of anything anymore. Educated people argue that men can become pregnant. The world desperately needs to know Jesus. But it's got to begin with knowing who Jesus is. Every human being will be required to answer this question. This is the final exam. It's a one question final exam, winner take all. Who is Jesus? Is he a good man? Is he a good teacher? Is he a good example, a good leader, a a prophet? A recent survey poll said 52% of Americans say Jesus isn't God, but was just a great teacher. Barnes Group conducted a survey in 2015 and people were asked to agree or disagree with the following statement. Jesus was human and committed sins. Only one third disagreed strongly. Age made no difference. All ages responded equally the same. Most claimed a commitment to Jesus that they claimed was still relevant in their lives. Only millennialists fell under half on this question. Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Now, thankfully, Peter is the Lord's mouthpiece to boldly proclaim our second point today, the irrefutable truth revealed to all humanity. No one's going to be able to stand and entertain the question and say, I'm sorry, I don't have that data. I've not been told what the answer should be. No one ever explained it to me. It simply will not fly. Romans tells us that every man is without excuse. Every man will stand and face God and entertain this question and be required to give the proper answer or be considered a traitor, be treasonous, 
Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the one promised and sent from God to be the redeemer, the rescuer of all fallen creation. You're the Christ. You're the answer to every problem. You're the Christ. Peter witnessed the miracles. Peter heard the incredible teaching. Peter's the one who said, you alone have the words of eternal life. He saw Jesus handle hostility, ridicule, hate. He saw Jesus' courage, compassion, and faithfulness. And God formed a conviction in his heart. You are the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that Genesis 3.15 prophesied about, the one who would come as a seed from woman and crush the head of Satan. But I don't think Peter really understood what came out of his mouth at this moment. In fact, we know he didn't. Just a few moments later, Jesus had to rebuke him and called him Satan because he wasn't, he wasn't on board with the plan that was in motion for the redemption of mankind. Yet God filled him with this conviction and he boldly confessed, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. He is one with God in essence and nature. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John 5.18 says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the truth upon which the church is built, Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon, because upon this confession, I'm going to build my church. The living God has revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus, and anyone who desires to be forgiven of sin and receive eternal life must concur. You must say with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You must say with Thomas, you are my Lord and my God. You again must say with Peter, you are, you alone have the words of eternal life. I'm not saying that such confessions with just words and some formula are sufficient. I'm saying that it must be the conviction, the convinced heart that that only God is revealed. It's not just simply repeating a set of words or a sentence. It must be conviction. This is where your trust lies. When you sat on those pews this morning, you fully expected those pews to support your weight. You didn't expect them to fall, to break. When you get on the airplane and head across country, traveling somewhere, you expect the, tr- the plane to do exactly what it promises to do. That is to carry you safely thousands of feet in the air to your destination. When you take your prescription meds, you expect the medicine to do exactly what the doctor said it would do to bring healing. And when you, in your heart and mind, hear the truth of the gospel and believe it, trust in it, and commit your way to it, you expect it to do exactly what he promises to do. This is faith. This is trust. This is belief. 
Confess Jesus as the Christ. Believe he is God's remedy for your fallenness, for your sin. God sent him to be the lamb of God to take away our sin. He suffered and died as a substitutionary sacrifice for his elect. He, as God, validated his work through his resurrection. Every human will have to give an answer. Who is Jesus? How you answer is critical. How you answer is critical. How you live your life says how you answer. Either you agree with his truth claim or you call him a fraud. C.S. Lewis probably posed it best in his book, Mere Christianity. This is what he said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as long as great as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman and maybe something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's either Lord, Christ, or he's just another man. This irrefutable truth is revealed by God. Jesus said, Peter, you did not figure this out on your own. Peter, this is not something some human has devised. It's not a program to make you feel better in your sin. It's not a means of coping with your difficulties. This is the truth that transformed condemned sinners into saints. And it comes only from God. In Christ, you are adopted into God's family. You are fellow heirs with Christ. We are not begotten sons like Christ. Nevertheless, we become sons and daughters, fellow heirs of all his promises, which he shares in conclusion of this passage. He offers us a triumphant promise. It's for God's people, those who have trusted in him and believed in him. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you. This word blessed gets a, it gets a unfair treatment. We, we flippantly say, well, it means to be happy. No, it's much deeper. It's much richer. It's much broader than that. It means to be, have, be filled with holy joy, righteousness that is glad, not just a flippant happy. Peter's response was delightful to Jesus and he let him know it and encouraged him to feel its full depth. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Peter, you should be blessed. You didn't just dream this up. You didn't concoct this on your own. You didn't see this on Netflix. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't many ways, many methods whereby the gospel can be communicated, but what I'm saying to you is that the heart is incapable of receiving and understanding the gospel of God unless God pulls the scales of blindness from us. Unless God breathes life into the heart, into the soul. 
You can try as long as you want to. You can memorize the entire Bible, but if God doesn't pull the scales from your heart, it's not going anywhere. It's not making any change. And Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you. God has revealed this to you. God has pulled open the blinders and allowed his light into your soul and it has gushed forth saying, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, my redeemer, my savior. You are the one who has the eternal words of life. But my father in heaven has revealed it to you. This is a very intimate expression he uses. My father, my father, his relationship to God's not the same as anyone else's. He is Christ. He is the son of God, the only begotten son. He is God. They are one in every perfection and in all essence. Jesus is pointing to the special aspect of his relationship with God. It's also important to note, he didn't push back on Peter's confession that he is the Christ. Everywhere Jesus went, he was constantly trying to keep that on the down low. He referred to himself as the son of man, emphasizing his humanity. But here when Peter said, thou art the Christ, Jesus said, ha, blessed are you. You have hit the number one answer, Peter. And God has revealed this to you. Be blessed. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build. What rock? Does it, means, does it mean the man Peter? Peter does mean stone. Or does it mean the faith that Peter professed? Or is it the, the teaching of Jesus himself? This he used in Matthew chapter seven, where he said, build your house on the rock. If you build on the sand, the storms will wash it away. Or is it Jesus himself? The name Peter means rock. So there's a play on words here, but I think Jesus was saying, I tell you, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. He acknowledges that Peter is a foundation of sorts as one of the apostles but he's pointing to this teaching that has, God has brought out of Peter's mouth from his lips. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the sole and only hope that we have. The only one who can rescue us from our depraved condition. Jesus is pointing to God's people who proclaim the gospel of Christ. Peter's the first apostle to do this boldly and publicly, but he's not the only one God builds upon. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, he said, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. It is the truth that flows from the Godhead that he's pointing out here. This, upon this, I will build my church. I will form and fashion and purify my bride. Ian Murray said the church is most evangelistic when she's least concerned about impressing the world or with adding to her numbers. I think Ian Murray is right. H.B. Charles said many churches try to reach the lost and edify the saints with church growth methodologies, marketing strategies, business paradigms, therapeutic philosophies, self-help theories, worldly entertainment, even signs and wonders. These things may fill buildings, but they don't make disciples. 
Instead, God says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God builds his church. He builds it his way based upon his word and on nothing else. Nothing else. My church, this is so important. It's not my church. It's not your church. It doesn't belong to this community. It doesn't belong to history. It doesn't belong to anyone but the Christ who died on the cross and shed his blood to purchase her. It's his church. Milton Community Church belongs to God and God alone. And anyone who takes issue with that will have to take issue with him. Let it never be said, it's our church. He created it, he created us, and he has ransomed us, purchased us a second time for himself. He is the power and the impetus for the organism that is the church. We followers, we preachers, we members, we're sowers of the truth, the sowers of seed. We go forth with our bags of seed, sowing that the gospel, but we don't make anything happen with it. No farmer in his right mind knows that he's going out to the field and scatter seed and he's going to stand there and command that seed to sprout and bring forth fruit. When's the last time you saw that happen? If that could happen, I would have had a truckload of tomatoes this summer. But I didn't. I faithfully worked and tended my garden and those tomato plants were pampered. And yet... They curled up and die at the first, at the first 95 degree day. And the farmer doesn't cause life to spring out of the ground. He plants, he sows the seed. It goes into the ground, it dies. And when it dies, that shell breaks forth open because the life is more powerful than the shell and death and comes forth out of the ground and it grows. And the farmer has the responsibility to nurture, to encourage, to cultivate and pray. Something far bigger and more powerful gives life and brings forth fruit. And it's more true in spiritual life even than in the created life. We followers of Christ, we scatter God's word. We preach it, we teach it, we confess it, we read it, we meditate upon it. We scatter it and God causes life to burst forth and gives fruit. He builds his church. And only his church. Church does not belong to any man or association. It belongs to Christ. He will build it. And he will build it as he sees fit. We are merely stewards. Responsible to scatter seed and tend it. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Death has no power. Death has no power. It's always amazing to me how many times people stand and pronounce a, a dead epithet over a church and say oh the church is dying the church is dead as long as the church belongs to God it's not dead it won't die unless he says it needs to die and I think God doesn't allow death to intrude upon that which he went to such great pains and efforts to give life the enemy can certainly distract and deceive and divide the people and he's going to work. He's going to work his, spin his truth, his false lies here in this place. He's going to try to divide, distract and destroy. But he can only do what you allow him to do. God will prevail. Satan cannot destroy or deny God's plans. 
We're not in Caesarea Philippi today. We're not looking at Pan's shrine. We certainly are not bowing down to it. No one here today is really that interested in worshiping Pan. But we may be tethered to other shrines. We may be looking and connected to other gods. We live here in a very garden spot of all humanity, Milton community, greater Atlanta. We have one of the best climates. We have everything you can imagine in the way of of, uh, stuff. The quality of life is off the charts. We have some idea of morality here. We have a family-friendly community in most respects. We have educational opportunities that are plentiful and rich. We have ample food supplies and quality transportation. We have comfortable housing and we have well-paying jobs. Innumerable conveniences, entertainment and comforts. But we can easily build shrines to these otherwise good things. It's easy for us to turn our abundance into false gods. We can look around at what's going on in the world and become frightened and even panic because we think the things we hold so dear are going to be taken away from us. We can put our hope in these things and be deceived and ignore, even reject Jesus as Christ. Who is Jesus? Is he Christ? Is he son of the living God? Or is he only one of many commodities available to you? Is he the Christ? Well, then what difference does it make in your life? What difference does it make in your daily activities? What difference does it make when you lay down at night and lay your head upon the pillow to go to sleep? If he is the Christ... He speaks the truth about us and to us. He says, there are none righteous, not one. Not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal death, eternal condemnation. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace and only by his grace. Examine your heart today. Examine your heart. How do you honestly answer this question, who is Jesus? Can you answer it correctly simply because you've heard it so many times before? Or does it gush forth out of your heart because God has revealed this to you? Because God has impressed this conviction upon your soul. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how many positions you've held in church. It doesn't matter how much money you've given to church. It doesn't matter how moral you are or how immoral you are. If your heart doesn't say and shout with Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, you've got problems. You've got problems. Have you believed the gospel and repented of your sin? If not, or you're not sure, I'd love a conversation with you today. Or sometime this week. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate this truth, this gospel. We celebrate 
two ordinances in the church because Christ instructed us to. We follow believers' baptism and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Both are designed to point us back to Christ and what he has done for us. Both are to remind us that the only thing we bring to this relationship with Christ is our sin that made it necessary for him to die. Jesus gave, gave us new life through his death, burial, and resurrection. We observe the Lord's Supper together. I encourage you to examine your hearts and relationship with Christ and prepare your hearts as we approach him today and remember his saving work and celebrate it for the joy that it is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We know, we, Lord, agree with Peter today. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for revealing this truth. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible atoning work that you have performed to cover our sin, to satisfy your wrath that was justified for sin. And Lord, to call us into yourself and to change us, justify us, and Lord, one day to glorify us and conform us perfectly to the image of Christ. I pray, Lord, for that one this morning who does not know you. I pray that even now the Holy Spirit is working upon that heart and drawing and compelling and urging them to believe and repent. Lord, I pray that those of us who call you Lord, who proclaim Christ as Savior, that, Lord, our lives would not be an empty, an empty view of that proclamation, but that it would be, our lives would be rich and full, living with the vibrancy of that glorious confession. Make it so. May Milton Community Church, Lord, be a reflection of your great glory. And in this community and to the furthest corners of this world, that the gospel might go forth in great power. Lives would be changed. And your great name would be known. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.